1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The International Criminal Court can pursue just four kinds of offenses, all of them grave misdeeds, such as crimes against humanity. But there's a movement underway to add one more ecocide, a crime against the environment. And Britney Spears is back in court, trying to shift the control over her life that's currently in the hands of her father. We look into the unusual arrangement known as conservatorship that has stripped her of her rights since 2008. But first... Today, Russia will host a conference on Afghanistan aimed at supporting the peace process. The talks will bring together the Afghan government and representatives of the Taliban, as well as several international players, including America. The meeting comes at a crucial time for Afghanistan. Last February, following negotiations with the Taliban, the Trump administration agreed to withdraw all American troops by May 1st of this year. On Tuesday, President Joe Biden told George Stephanopoulos of ABC News that America may miss that deadline.
2: I'm in the process of making that decision now as to when they'll leave. The
1: fact is that um, that was not a very solidly negotiated deal that uh, the president, the former president, uh, worked out. And so we're in consultation with our allies as well as the government, and uh, uh, that decision's going to be, it's in process now.
3: Likely to take longer?
1: I I don't think a lot longer. But May 1st is tough? Could happen, but it it is tough because, look. As it stands, there are two and a half thousand American troops and perhaps a thousand more special operations forces in Afghanistan. That's down from a peak of more than a hundred thousand. As with its predecessors, Mr. Biden's administration will be keen to end America's longest war. But a premature departure could spell disaster.
2: The peace conference being held today in Moscow is an attempt to bring together the Taliban insurgents and the Afghan government to try and come up with some kind of arrangement for how Afghanistan could be run in future and therefore stop the war between those two sides.
1: Edward McBride is our Asia editor.
2: This is just one of several peace conferences underway or planned. There's going to be another peace conference in Turkey in April. And for months now, there have been peace talks underway between the Afghan government and the Taliban in Qatar. And they haven't been making much headway, which is why both Russia and the U.S. have tried these new initiatives.
1: And one big question looming over all this is whether or not the Biden administration will fulfill the promise to pull out troops by May 1st. What does it look like for for that commitment?
2: That deadline was agreed in separate peace talks between America and the Taliban, concluded over a year ago under the administration of Donald Trump. And it always looked quite optimistic. And I think the difficulty for the Biden administration is to decide whether or not to stick to that deadline On the one hand, if they take all the troops out, the Taliban may decide, to hell with the peace talks, we'll just try and overrun the Afghan government by conquest. And that would obviously look very embarrassing and would call into question all the work that the U.S. has done over the past 20 years to try and institute a different kind of government within Afghanistan. On the other hand, if they say they're going to stay and ignore the deadline of May 1st, then they face the prospect of a renewed Taliban offensive. So then there's the prospect that America will find itself embroiled just as heavily as it has been for 20 years in the Afghan civil war, more American casualties and more expense and difficulty without any clear prospect of how the war might end.
1: But coming to a decision on those questions is exactly what these peace talks are about, right?
2: Absolutely. So in theory, the peace talks provide a great way out for everyone. The hitch is that the peace talks that have been underway in Qatar for many months now have not yielded any kind of a breakthrough. And unfortunately, there's not much reason to expect the talks today in Russia or indeed the talks in Turkey next month to yield any more of a breakthrough.
1: And so why the impasse? Who's asking for what that they're not getting?
2: The bottom line really is that both the Taliban and the Afghan government think of themselves as the rightful rulers of Afghanistan. And they're not really working to their own schedules, right? This whole process has been determined by the fact that the Trump administration originally, but the Biden administration now, are both keen to end America's longest war. Neither within the Taliban nor within the Afghan government has the sort of internal process of deciding how much they're willing to give up really proceeded far enough to meet that deadline of the 1st of May. The way out of the impasse that America has been pushing in recent days is a sort of power sharing agreement whereby both the Taliban and the Afghan government come together to form a government of national unity where they both control some ministries, perhaps they both have some kind of control over the security forces. And whilst in that power-sharing government, they reach some kind of final agreement about a new constitution or a new sort of power structure, the problem is neither side has really agreed to it. Both are worried about being just a sort of adjunct to the real power within a power-sharing agreement. Neither side is very comfortable sharing power with the other because they've been fighting for so long.
1: And what about that fighting, though? Has the Taliban been honoring its side of the agreements that, that have been made while the peace negotiations are going on?
2: Right. So there are lots of people who think that the Taliban just isn't sincere about this whole process, that it's got an advantage on the battlefield, that the area under the government's control keeps shrinking. The Taliban is just waiting for America to go before it pushes its advantage. And certainly, even though the Taliban agreed not to attack American troops, it never agreed not to attack the government troops, and it's continued its campaign, and even in a certain sense, increased it insofar as there have been a series of attacks on representatives of civil society, the kind of urban elite in Kabul assassinations, uh, bombings that the Taliban sometimes denies being a part of, but that everyone suspects it's behind. The Taliban, I think, see this violence as their strongest card. The government has to negotiate because it's very much under the kosh from the Taliban's forces on the ground. But that bloodshed also makes it really difficult for America just to up sticks and go right now because it really does look like America is abandoning the Afghan government to its fate.
1: And so do you think that points to the Biden administration being rather forced to delay any troop withdrawals?
2: I think what America is looking for is some kind of middle way where the talks seem to be making enough progress or there's some kind of idea of where we're headed that they can agree with the Taliban, a bit of an extension and not actually have to stick to that deadline of the 1st of May, but also not have to sort of double down on backing the Afghan government with a renewed troop presence. I think the instincts of the Biden administration are really similar to the instincts of the Trump administration. They don't really think that it's going to be possible to build a strong, modern nation state in Afghanistan. They don't want to be embroiled in a war that just drags on forever. So I think the Biden administration is looking for any way it can to get the troops out of Afghanistan without the Afghan government collapsing or some kind of horror unfolding in terms of an escalation of the civil war. The thing we don't know is whether the Taliban is willing to sort of provide the Biden administration that option and give substance to all these different peace talks, or whether it thinks after 20 years it has finally beaten America and it does indeed intend to take over the country as soon as the American troops are gone. We still don't quite know the answer to that question, and that's what all of this hinges on.
1: Edward, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. In the 1960s and early 1970s, America's military dumped millions of gallons of chemicals over Vietnam. The compounds were known as the rainbow herbicides, Agents Green, Blue, Pink, Purple, White, and most commonly, Agent Orange. The objective was to expose and starve out Viet Cong fighters lurking under the canopy by killing the trees. At a 1972 environmental conference, Sweden's Prime Minister Olaf Palmer summed up the Vietnam War's environmental damage in a word. He accused America's government of ecocide. The immense
2: destruction brought about by indiscriminate bombing, by large-scale use of bulldozers and herbicides, is an outrage, sometimes described as ecocide, which requires urgent international attention.
1: In the decades since, the term has caught on among environmental advocates.
0: Ecocide is a term that is used to describe environmental devastation to the degree where an ecological system gets completely degraded and is no longer fit for purpose.
1: Rachel Dobbs is a news editor for The Economist.
0: Ecocide is currently on the international agenda because a panel of lawyers are drafting a definition which they hope will ultimately be adopted by the International Criminal Court to make it a crime against peace.
1: And how does that fit in with the ICC's agenda as it stands now?
0: The International Criminal Court has jurisdiction over four crimes, which are genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and the crimes of aggression. They are all laid out in the Rome Statute, which is the statute that underpins the work of the International Criminal Court, and which was signed in 1998 and came into force four years later. And types of environmental destruction were originally slated to go into the Rome Statute, but... They were ultimately dropped by the time the final draft rolled around. Environmental destruction is slightly incorporated into the existing crimes that the International Criminal Court oversees, particularly under war crimes, which has a very slim provision which prohibits the manipulation of the environment for battlefield advantage in a way that would destroy the people living there.
1: But a distinction there seems to be between environmental damage that has to do then with damage to to humans versus damage to the environment itself. I mean, what what will this draft definition look like and include?
0: So it's not at all clear yet. The panel is still doing their deliberations, and we likely won't know until June. But Philippe Sands, who is the lawyer who is co-chairing the panel, is very interested in the idea that it could become a definition that protects the environment as an end in itself.
1: If this idea is so old, though, why is it taken until now for it to come back to the table?
0: So the campaign for ecocide to be recognised is chiefly the work of Polly Higgins, who was a barrister and environmental activist who died in 2019. But she lobbied the United Nations for years to have ecocide classed as an international crime. And though they ultimately rejected her proposal, the International Criminal Court did agree to evaluate cases of environmental destruction underneath crimes against humanity. Indeed, there was a case filed against Jair Bolsonaro, the president of Brazil, at the beginning of this year, to that effect from indigenous Amazon leaders over his deforestation of the Amazon, which destroys their livelihoods. But the NGO that Polly Higgins co-founded, the Stop Ecocide Foundation, has been continuing to campaign for this ever since her death and were ultimately responsible for convening the legal panel that is now trying to draft a definition.
1: And how likely is it, do you think, that the ICC will adopt this as a new sort of foundational crime?
0: It's a long process. Once the definition is drafted, it will then have to be proposed by one of the countries that is a signatory to the Rome Statute. Uh, There is some indication that low-lying island countries like the Maldives would be interested in doing this, um, and then it would have to be supported by two-thirds of the other signatories. But there is also indication that countries like France are prepared to offer diplomatic support for that, particularly as interest and desire for rules criminalizing ecocide are expanding within their own borders.
1: But I mean, what are the barriers? Who, Who would be against such a ruling?
0: There is no one currently on the record saying that they are against the idea of ecocide, but consensus is really hard to come by. And there are countries, I imagine, that would be against international rules that stop them doing what they want with their resources, particularly within their own borders.
1: Well, I suppose that's the question. I mean, what kinds of infractions would then become criminal? Is it it anything that, that is judged as, ooh, that's bad for the environment?
0: This is a very complicated issue, and a lot of this will hinge on the definition that the panel comes up with. One of the big problems with it will be that an awful lot of environmental destruction is carried out by companies, the heads of which are harder to haul in front of international criminal courts. A lot of them span national borders, which makes it more complicated. They would also have to pass a certain bar in terms of environmental destruction. It would have to be a definition that somehow encompasses destruction that is severe enough that it has a understandable knock-on effect on climate change or the environment as a whole.
1: But assuming an agreeable definition can be reached and this does pass into law, how enforceable would that law be?
0: International criminal law is always a backstop. It can't replace laws within countries and it is an imperfect backstop in that. Despite decades of genocide being classed as a crime, it still happens. Also, many countries sign up to sort of international treaties and then simply just delete provisions that they don't like. Saudi Arabia, for example, signed up to a UN treaty against discrimination against women and then just deleted laws, which means that women in Saudi Arabia continue to have rights far lower than those enjoyed by women in the rest of the world. And some major countries, including China and America, still aren't party to the Rome statute and therefore have not signed up to the work of the International Criminal Court. And that's particularly relevant here because China and America are two of the biggest polluters in the world.
1: So without being too cynical, it does raise the question then of of why bother with this at all?
0: I think as with all forms of international crime, naming them has a purpose, which is that it sets norms around acceptable behaviour and sets out rules for what civilised societies will or will not do. Also, even if they don't ultimately end up in convictions, international court cases create huge records of wrongdoing, which does have an impact in stripping perpetrators of the illusion of impunity that they might have. So if this definition is adopted, it will be imperfect, but it could also mark a really interesting and important sea change in the way that the relationship between the environment and humans is understood, particularly if... It's an ecocentric definition that defines the environment as something worth protecting for its own ends, not just because of the value that humans derive from it.
1: Rachel, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. Musicians around the world are covering songs by the pop star Britney Spears in support of the Free Britney movement.
0: Baby, can't you see me?
1: They're protesting against a peculiar legal arrangement that has granted the singer's father, James Spears, control over many parts of her life since 2008. Yesterday, Ms. Spears' legal team returned to court to attempt to strip her father of this power, known as conservatorship. A judge said the matter would be reviewed at the end of April.
3: Conservatorships are a really controversial part of the American legal system. They affect around 1.3 million people in the country.
1: Kenneth Werner writes for The Economist.
3: The publicity around the Free Britney campaign has shown a light on them, and now
1: momentum is building to reform them. First off, what exactly are conservatorships? How do they work?
3: A conservatorship, and sometimes they're known as guardianships, they're a legal arrangement where a court will judge someone to be incapacitated and hand over control of their finances and medical care to someone else who's known as a conservator. Basic choices like where to live whether to vote, whom to marry, are no longer theirs to make. Most of the people in conservatorships are old and suffer from dementia, but the rest are otherwise mentally impaired. And they're so significant because they're so highly restrictive. A conservatorship essentially strips someone of all their civil liberties. In that way, they're kind of like incarceration or being committed to an asylum. Once a court puts you in a conservatorship, only a court can take you out of one. And that doesn't happen very often.
1: But if they're intended, for the most part, for people who suffer from dementia or are mentally ill, why is Britney Spears in one?
3: We really don't know much about Britney Spears' situation. An alleged mental illness seems to be the reason why she's in a conservatorship, but we don't know anything about her diagnosis or condition. Last year, her lawyer, for the first time, said that she didn't want her father to be co-conservator anymore. and. On that point, she's gotten support from the ACLU and even congressional Republicans. Last week, Jim Jordan and Matt Gates, two congressional Republicans, asked for a congressional hearing into conservatorships.
1: The way you describe them makes it sound like the conservator has a complete and unalienable rights here. I mean, are, are there any checks in place to limit their power?
3: Conservators do have a fiduciary duty. They're meant to represent the best interests of the person in the conservatorship. That person is often called a ward. But the arrangement is obviously kind of ripe for exploitation. You hear stories every so often of old people getting conned out of their savings. The fact is that regulation is really patchy. This is regulated at the state level, and there are lots of gaps. Some states let people get put into emergency conservatorships, even if they're absent from the court hearing. And in others, conservators can sell off big assets like someone's house without court approval.
1: And so now that the, the Free Britney campaign has shown a light on this, as you say, what, what are the proposals for reforming them, for making them less ripe for abuse?
3: I talked to Nina Cohn. She's a law professor at Syracuse University, and she explained to me that there are lots of less restrictive alternatives that can be put in place with some advanced planning, but there also are proposals to reform conservatorships and just strengthen oversight over them. A few years ago, the Senate Special Committee on Aging looked into this, and they recommended some draft legislation to states. That legislation would stop courts from imposing conservatorships on people absent from the proceeding and also require that conservators get explicit court permission before big decisions are made, like moving someone to a nursing home. Also, it would make it easier for family and friends to keep tabs on conservators, but the fact is only two states, Washington and Maine, have adopted that proposal fully.
1: And while these reforms start anyway, what next for Britney Spears?
3: It looks like Britney Spears just wants to reduce her father's control over her life, but not necessarily to void the conservatorship altogether. And that seems totally reasonable. One day her conservatorship could end completely. And if and when that happens, the lyrics to a song she covered, my prerogative, will match reality. In that song, she sang, I don't need permission make my own decisions. That's my prerogative.
1: Kenneth, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
2: Still need permission.